Why does it seem that narcissists and other toxic people don't miss us the same way that we miss them when a relationship ends? In this podcast, Tara and I explore several reasons why the grief process is so challenging for victims and why it seems almost non-existent for those who are doing the leaving. And today's self-help tip is using containment as a way to manage grief. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse, where we talk about strategies, tips, and tricks on navigating and recovering from narcissistic abuse. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie McAvoy, a mental health clinician with over 20 years experience and author of Love You More, a graphic inside look at my experience of a toxic relationship. And I'm your other co-host, Tara Blair Ball, a certified relationship coach and B survivor and author of Reclaim and Recover, Heal from Toxic Relationships with a seven-step guided journal. So today we're going to talk about the ex. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a nicer or prettier way of saying it, but really just the ex and how we might view them and their grief process or non-grief process versus our grief process. One of my followers reached out to me recently because they were struggling so much with grief over the end of that relationship, feeling like they couldn't function, feeling like they were constantly crying. And, you know, I've shared this before that when I left my left my ex-husband that I found myself needing to carry sunglasses everywhere because I might burst into tears and I didn't know wh- where that might happen. And this follower said the same thing, that they were they just didn't know when they might start crying, what might start trigger it. And then they randomly saw their ex out and about and they seemed happy and fine and the exact opposite of how they were feeling. And the question that they had is, why, why am I like this? Why do I miss them so desperately? And why do they seem fine? Why do they seem to not miss me? Carrie, have you encountered this? Yeah, I know that at the end of the relationship, that as it happened to me, I was in deep grief. I, and it helped me to recognize that. I actually, there was a moment where I was having all this experience of pain and angst and processing. And because I had lost my first husband to death and I had already grieved one relationship, I remember saying to myself, Carrie, this is grief. You're grieving. There's a death that's occurred. And maybe it's a death of the person that you thought that you met. Maybe it's the death of what you wished for this relationship. Maybe it's the death of the future you thought you were going to have. But you're grieving just like you grieved Brad's death. You're now grieving the death of this relationship. It brought me so much clarity because then I had a container, sort of a, a explanation for what was going on. But I knew a lot of people experience it, but don't have words to identify it. They just see it as this why am I a mess and this other person's not a mess? Or why am I so tore up and this other person seems to be happy? Which I think for me, that makes it feel worse because then it makes it feel like there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm not doing a normal process. But it is, it is, there's another inherent problem in this. And that is why does the other person seemingly not grieve? Why does the person who's the more toxic individual seem to sort of move on and almost as if to me, it almost feels like the relationship is a curtain, like a like a fast food bag, a meal that they ate and then now they're throwing it away. Why are they able to do that so well? So to me, there's kind of a two sets of problems inside this. What's happening in the toxic individual? And then how do we process grief and move through this in a healthy way? So the first thing I would say, and I've said this to a lot of clients, is we can't judge 
our insides versus someone else's outsides. We don't necessarily really know what's going on inside of them, and it's not necessarily fair to compare that to what we are actually going through. The other side of it is if anybody... I love that, though. Yeah. And that's great. I, I just, I love that. They, you know, we forget that, don't we? Mm-hmm. We forget the fact that we don't know the person's process inside of them. Let me give you an example of what I discovered, because thanks to analytics, I was able to watch what stories of mine were read and who was reading them. Maybe I did not know the person, but I could know where in the world that they were being read. One of my stories was about the end of my relationship and the big aha. It was actually a letter I wrote to myself. And it was what I wish I knew then that I now know. And I found out there was a person living in the same city as my ex in a city that people don't speak English. And this article's in English. And it was being read over and over and over and over at the weirdest times, like 2 a.m. in the morning, and he's in the same time zone as I am in, that he was reading this article over and over and over and over. I had some similar experiences to that with my ex-husband. He never really would read anything that I wrote while we were together. And it was an ongoing problem in our relationship. I was like, I love this. I'm passionate about this. And he was like, well, I'm not a reader, et cetera. He read everything I wrote ever <laughs> after we got separated or divorced. <laughs> but anyway, yes, similar story. But I, I do think, yes, that how someone presents in their grief may not look the way that we present in our grief. And I think the other aspect of it is that especially if someone jumps into another relationship very quickly, that can just be a huge avoidance tactic that they're not really having to face or deal with their feelings because they're hyper fixated or love bombing a new person. So that doesn't mean that they're not going to deal with some emotional fallout at some point. We just may not be able to be witnesses to that, which kind of sucks. Like it's it would be nice to see them really, really hurt. But that's that may not be part of our journey. And we shouldn't base our healing on whether we see the person who wronged us hurt or not. We've got to take some of that power back for ourselves and look at that and realize that we don't want to deal with a person like that again, someone who's going to act that way. And I also want to point out some studies. I don't know where I read it and I don't know how accurate this is. So if it's totally inaccurate, we'll put it in the comments. But particularly with men, they can take one to two years to actually start grieving the end of a relationship. And I don't think we should say that just about men because I myself, just as someone who faced and dealt with a lot of trauma, I find that I have a lot of delay in processing certain emotions or feelings, or I might not recognize until later that something is actually grief. You know, I went through this period where I was constantly rearranging furniture in my house, and I didn't realize until later that that was me just trying to give myself some tasks to do because I didn't want to actually sit still because if I sat still, I would be really sad. So sometimes we're doing things that may not look like grief, but are actually grief. And it's about, are we okay getting there at some point? I think the other thing is, is that people go through relationship stages at different paces. And the person who discards the relationship has tend to already done some of the work ahead of time. I'm back to thinking the stages of of a typical narcissistic relationship where there's idealization, then there's devaluation, and then there's the discard. So if you have somebody who's more toxic, more pathological, when they begin to see that you're not going to magically fix everything in their hearts and lives the way that they wish that you would, and they begin to see you as a real person, 
not this this caricature that they've imagined, they're already in their mind grieving that loss. Now, it's an unrealistic loss. It should probably have never been made in the first place. But that devaluation stage where the criticism and the personal attack and the fighting is escalating, that's actually is a form of grief. One of the things that shocked me about grief when I went through with processing the loss of my first husband is that there's a lot of rage and anger part, is part of a grief where you're mad at things for what they are and you're mad that things are going to the way that they're going. And so what some of that devaluation, and I don't want to like right away, right off and say devaluation is okay, it's not okay, but it may be some of what that rage you're experiencing is their grief being processed outward with you. So that by the time that they leave, they've already moved to an indifferent and apathetic stage, which is you've become a no one to them. And so they just sort of like, they don't have the same kind of feelings that you do. One of the things I saw a lot when I was working with marriages was that often there's a person who's complaining. I'm not talking about healthy relationships, not dysfunctional relationships. But in the healthy relationship, there's often somebody's protesting. This is not working. I'm not happy. I'm doing too much or I'm not getting my needs met or whatever it is. And they protest and they protest and they protest. It's almost like a person who's in a boat. I may have shared this before. And they've fallen into the water and they're drowning and they're saying, I'm drowning. This relationship's in trouble. I'm drowning. But eventually they stop and they drown. And often at that the time, the other person like realizes they're alone in the boat and being scrambling, trying to find where their partner is gone without realizing the relationship has already died. That person's already gone. So sometimes we've done it in a very different stages and that our grief is we're often, if we're the ones left or not at the same place of feeling ready to leave, we're the one that does the grief after the relationship's over. They've maybe already done the work during the relationship. And that could feel really jarring. I know that when my, by the time my husband died from cancer, I had five and a half months. I'd been crying every day for five and a half months. My grief afterwards looked different than a person whose husband suddenly dropped dead. They would start their grief. I've already been grieving for five and a half months. I also think, too, that after an unhealthy or toxic relationship, that there's it's a little bit more that we're grieving for. Like I recognized that I was grieving for a loss within myself, a loss of innocence or a loss of who I thought I was, the person I thought I was, the person I thought I was in that relationship. I struggled with anger more against myself than I did against my ex. I was so angry at myself that I should have known, I should have done differently, I should have left sooner. And that that really in, entangled with the grief was so much more intense than I'd had from leaving a previous relationship because it wasn't just about losing the relationship ending in and of itself. It also was a sense of who I was ending too and realizing that I needed mm-hmm. that that person. to I, I couldn't be that person anymore and how how sad that was to accept that and move on. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, I had some of that. But the other thing that I was grieving, too, was the loss of the person I thought I'd met and realizing that person never existed, that that was actually a mirage. And for me, I was deeply tore up about that. It felt, yeah, I felt maybe there was probably parts of what you just described feeling bad that I'd fallen for, that I missed that it wasn't real. But I also really loved the person I imagined that I met. And 
And that I, I tried to give myself space around that and saying, it's okay to have fallen for somebody that didn't exist. He existed to you. And that it hurt to now know that that person didn't exist, but you still lost somebody you imagined that you had. And that was really a cool person. So it kind of helped me to sort of mentally separate, okay, the person that he actually is, I don't want in my life. He's, he's a horrible person, toxic. But the person I thought that he introduced me to, that was really a lovely person. I wish he existed. And it's okay to miss that person. That was the part I had to kind of give myself permission. It's okay to miss him because he was really cool. May not have really existed, but he was really cool. And that kind of helped me not get so caught up in what my ex is doing today because I don't want that person. If I'd ever met him first, I wouldn't have chosen him. So it just kind of helped me sort of like, like you said, that word entangled. You're right. It's so much sort of, it's so it's so murky because there's so much confusion and deception and duplicity there that it just, it, it's really easy for us to turn it in on ourselves and say, we're bad because we're feeling all of these feelings. And especially when they seemingly do move, I mean, I probably have not shared this out loud before, but my ex actually published engagement pictures as we were divorced and we were divorced super fast. So our divorce occurred like in six weeks. They already had scheduled a photo shoot mm -hmm. on a beach near where we lived, not near where he lived or they lived, where we had lived. And they're showing off the engagement ring that he had gotten her. I'm like, how? They're already engaged. I mean, yes, okay, that relationship was ongoing through the entire time that we were married. So it wasn't like they just met. But how, how, how in your face, how... How more hurtful could you have been than to say you were nothing? Except you're such a nothing and we've moved right on because you're such a nothing. That's how I sort of had to sort of separate all that pain out, having it so in my face. Absolutely. That's just heartbreaking. And how do you not take that personally? You know what I mean? I know that they don't necessarily give a shit about us that yeah. have like iPhones to them, but like, uh. <laughs> Just yeah, like, well, I, I think mine actually, there was something. Yeah, no, no, yeah, mine was, there was a sadistic piece to this. It was an effort to hurt me. It was an effort to say, you, you are nothing. You are such a nothing that I've already moved on and I'm already happy. And look at the pretty ring I got her. Yeah, but I had to, that's how I was kind of trying to process it myself was to say, the person you met never existed. And the person that you ended up living with, you would never have chosen. It's okay, he and her together, you wouldn't have chosen him. But it's okay to also be really grieving over who you thought you met and that you miss. That And it's kind of crazy, but it, it helped me sort of kind of process the cognitive dissonance involved in all of that because it was, I mean, it was, it was painful, really painful. And really grieving the dream of that relationship too, not just... Yeah. Not just who you wish that he'd been, but like the life that you had imagined with each other, the... Uh, I, th I think that dream piece really gets a lot of us because we hold on and stay in those relationships for, for so long, hoping and longing for that those dreams that we have to come to fruition. Like they'll be this person, they'll be this person all the time, the abuse will stop, whatever. And having to let go that that, that dream is never going to happen, you know? And right. some of us really struggle leaving because we hold on so so tightly to that dream. I think what threw me off, and I know that I had kind of a different experience than, than others. I know that I meet a lot of people who've only just had a toxic relationship. They don't have a, a normal relationship to sort of base it off. And thank God, Tara, you're in a normal relationship. So you're now getting to experience all that now. But I got to experience it first. 
one of the things that trapped me and was really confused me was that my marriage to my first husband wasn't perfect. We grew together and it got better as it got older. And there was a lot of things that we kind of came around and kind of really start choosing each other, you know, sort of matured and choose because we met each other at 19. And so we were together 30 years and we grew up and grew together. That that gave me a perspective that it's possible that you can have maybe not the best match in the beginning, but that if you've got two people who are able to maturate, that it's, there's a potential for that. And I think that added to my confusion because I kept thinking it's possible here, not realizing it's not possible when somebody is toxic and somebody is actually about exploitation and power manipulation and they're just using people. You're not going to get to a that's that, that's not going to profoundly. I mean, you pointed out in another podcast that well, we only change fifteen percent. Well, that's a pretty hardwired part of a personality to see people as objects. It's not going to shift, and it takes maturation to see people grow and become adaptive. They don't adapt well, so it was very hard though for me to accept that, to accept that this person's profoundly deficient in these areas. These things are not going to come together the way that they did in the first marriage. So that was the other part of that I had to sort of let go. And and was it grief? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but it certainly was sort of more intellectual kind of processing for me to sort of say that to myself, acknowledge the reality of it, see that it is different, put it in a different category so that I could then let go of it, let go of feeling like I didn't work hard enough or I didn't stick out long enough or that I didn't, we didn't do enough. No, I don't, there wasn't enough that we could have done of any of those things that would have fixed this. I think too, so I I can actually very much relate my first marriage to your experience of your second marriage and that and maybe it's just social expectations about marriage in general. You hear a lot of phrases like the first year is always hard and you both work and you, it'll get better. And I think those, even though I'd never been in, in a healthy relationship before, I think I got into marriage believing this is what will happen. We'll grow together. We'll mature together. This is what will happen. And I remember going to the optometrist in my first year of marriage, and my last name had changed because I got married, and my optometrist at the time congratulated me, like, oh, congratulations on getting married. And I must have had some look on my face because he immediately said, oh, the first year is always hard. And that that was such a moment for me of like, because I'm usually pretty good at keeping stuff off my face. I'm usually pretty good, but I don't, I mean, I guess he just caught me. And at a moment where I couldn't hide what was actually going on is that my marriage at the time had just like literally never been been good. It had never been okay, And I was really fighting to follow those those marital beliefs of like, it'll get better. We'll work together. We'll find it. And and I I, too, thought that some amount of work, some couples therapy, couples retreats, books, podcasts, whatever, it will fix us and we'll get to to this good marriage place. Because I think there's a lot of, you know, there's so much stigma against divorce anyway that you've got to work through it. And that's what you do. You work through it. And I, I saw that in my first marriage. And because I had those expectations of what marriage was like, because of what I assumed was good thought, it really kept me more stuck than maybe if I had recognized earlier in the beginning that it's not supposed to be this hard. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I heard Lindsay Gibson say this. She's the author of the book, 
adult children of emotionally immature parents. And she said at the end of a continue education, the training that I took, she said, whenever I hear someone say all relationships are hard work, I know I've met somebody who's been in a relationship with an emotionally immature person. Now, she uses that word to talk about personality disorders, because I know a lot of people in the public who hear that like, well, they're not just emotionally immature. They're like, that's who they are. Like, yes, yes, I'm not excusing their immaturity. But her point is that relationships shouldn't be hard work. If we're working that hard, then there's something incredibly wrong about that relationship. But it's hard because this whole thing, back to the, the grief, I know for me that when I meet somebody, I create this, almost like this archetype, this like this image of what I think this person is. And I don't realize it's actually an internal representation of what I wish. And I put it on the person and then I hope that they live up to it. And then I start to deal with the fact to the degree that they don't. Even that's grief. I mean, even let go. The people are themselves. It's okay to have these mismatches. It's okay to have people leave. It's okay to have things not work out. But I, frankly, in most of my life, Tara, never got that message. I got the message that when relationships don't work or when people leave or when there's a mismatch and we don't like each other, that that means there's something wrong with me. No, it just means it's not a match. That's all that it means. It's not really a detail about you and it's not really a detail about me. And I think that's something I wish we would stop doing, that we'd stop putting on each other, that expectation. Yeah, seeing it as okay that these relationships yeah. don't work out. Exactly. And whether or not they're toxic or not, it's okay. People move on. We do sometimes there's an expiration date to relationships. Absolutely. I like I've always liked that phrase, reason, season, or lifetime. I have not heard that. Say it again. Reason, season, or lifetime. You hear it a lot with friendships, but I, I found it true of of every kind of relationships. Romantic, even family, you know, some of my family relationships, those were not lifetime relationships for me. Um, but I, I just, I just love that. That's powerful. Yeah. Reason, season, or lifetime. Yeah. Reason, season, or lifetime. Wow. So, sort of wrap up. But I, I think the thing is, is just to, is to realize that grief is a part of a stage of processing relationships, and it's really not, it's not a personal failing, but it happens that it's just, it's a natural thing. But we've not been taught to grieve very well, and that kind of ties in well with what you're going to talk about with our self help tip today for grief. Today's self-help tip is called, the term I often use is called containment, which is the term that's used in research studies. There are some other terms like making a date with grief that Carrie suggested before this, but basically you're setting aside some time with no obligations, no responsibilities, no duties. You can turn the phone off, you can turn the TV off, and you give yourself time to feel whatever you want to feel. Shortly after my divorce, what I would do is I would schedule this time. I would literally put it in a calendar on my phone. I was like, I'm going to spend 30 minutes just by myself, whatever, and see what happens, see what comes up. And it was particularly helpful for me in making my grief a little bit more manageable. Like if I felt something coming up while I was in a grocery store or out about, I might write briefly what I was thinking about in the notes app on my phone. And then that could be something I address during my containment time. Because what I found and what a lot of us find is that grief is going to come out one way or another, and we've got to give it that space. So sometimes I might take a walk, I might journal, I might write a letter I never send, but I gave myself that time to feel whatever I was going to feel. And 
when I scheduled those regularly, it really helped me move through the more unmanageable parts of the grief where it feels like you're going to cry and never stop. It was less scary overall, less overwhelming to just give myself that time. And I kept putting it off because I'm like, if I start crying, I'll never stop. That just wasn't true. It felt like a relief, honestly. And it really, really helped me start to process and move through what I needed to move through. I love that. I did the same. It was terribly helpful, extremely helpful tip. Yeah. So when you say, when you described it as making a date with grief, how would your date look? I actually set a timer just like you did. Set a time and set the timer and then I would let it go for 20 minutes. I'd actually turn on very dark music, very sad music, and then let myself immerse into it. And like you, I thought the same thing. I thought, it's never going to end or it's going to overtake me. But I found out actually it expired that there was like, yes, there's a pitch to it. Yes, it got pretty intense, but then it it wore back off. And then it found that it really did put a container around it. I like your word too. It's really helpful. It did. It kept it in a safe space for me and it, and it stayed better in that space by doing this. Have you been judging your ex's outsides based on your insights? And are you going to schedule some containment time to help you start processing some grief? You can let us know by emailing us at hello at breakingfreewithcarrytara.com. If you haven't yet, make sure you follow or subscribe, write us a review. And if you know someone who would benefit from this episode, make sure to share it with them. If you're not following us on social media yet, you can check me out at tara.relationshipcoach and carrie at carriemacavoyphd. We will see you back here next Monday where we'll be talking about when the abusive or narcissistic one is a friend or family member.